Hello everyone, it's May 9th, 2023. This week we're doing a suborbital roundup. A handful of rocket companies have been doing some interesting suborbital launches, so why not take a look at a type of space launch that we tend to overlook and just fly right past. So a little less horizontal velocity this week, let's do it and lift off. And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 408 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. So I was going to resort to entertainment news, something I heard, but I don't remember what it was, but some cool sci-fi things happening, but I don't remember what. Oh, darn. Um, I'm, I'm bummed you don't remember. I'm looking forward to uh, Dune Part 2, but that's that's the end of the year. So did you watch the Dune 2 trailer? I think no. I... Only the teaser. I think it's a... Yeah, it's not even a trailer. It's a teaser, right? It's uh, Paul Atreides walking down a dune, putting a little thumper in the ground and then turning it on, and then it just kind of fades to black, I think, and that's all. Um, oh, at least that's much. the teaser that I saw. Mm-hmm. So that's all I got. But I found out about this through a YouTube channel called Quinn's Ideas. Has anyone watched that? I think oh, I've yeah. About that's it. really good. Yeah. It's like the best. If you want to learn about great sci-fi novels and just, you know, entertainment, his is the best. I mean, Quinn's Ideas is like the channel to watch. And I love every time there's a new episode. Uh, and he's a big Dune fan. So you're going to hear a lot about Dune. <laughs> that's probably the number one topic. But just anything. I mean, every series you've ever heard of. Yeah. He did a lot of videos on Dune, but it's not like he goes back to it too often like he's a prolific reader like he just yeah i don't know how he consumes as much as he does um but like he talked about uh blind sight which is like a sci-fi horror book that i listened to an audiobook version of and kind of regret having listened to because it was so terrifying to me um really okay. <laughs> i'd heard about it because i know i actually watched the video about that but i don't remember yet you have to jog my memory what is blind sight about yeah i mean the 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 practical stuff, like the like normal sci-fi stuff, is that vampires are real and they are like a parallel species to humans and they eat so much that they develop the ability to go into like deep hibernation. Um, and so humanity found that they, they basically would hibernate for, you know, a thousand years and then pop up and cull most of uh, humanity and then go back to sleep. And so humans dug them up before they could emerge um, in the modern era. And um, we took their, uh, like their deep sleep genetics and like learned how to do long distance interplanetary travel with like hibernation. Uh, So like the scary thing is that like uh, a, an alien ship shows up on the uh, edges of the solar system and we send we can only manage to send one ship out to it just based on the orbital dynamics. And like they get there and it's like, uh, you know, an alien ship that they don't know how to communicate with. And like, there's a lot of radiation and like it, you know, it's just, it's like kind of the scary, like, Oh, they're aliens. And also there's a vampire on our ship, but that's like the standard, like more normal sci-fi stuff. What really got to me was the, the psychological terror, which was, um, talking about consciousness and the nature of consciousness and whether it's possible to have intelligence without consciousness. And it's just, it hurt so bad in my soul. Like it just <laughs> deep down, it unsettled me so badly. Like for like a month, I was like depressed because of this book. <laughs> wow. But so, so I watched Quinn Quinn's uh, cover, like, you know, summary of it. And I was like, Oh yeah, nope. Shouldn't have watched that, that video either. Did not need to pick open those wounds. (laughs) 
suborbital roundup. We've never done one of these roundups before, right? We've had, what's the roundup that we usually do? Test fest. Test fest, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Firings all seem to happen, yeah. This is a test too, right? This is, But this is specifically a suborbital test roundup. At least I think they're all tests. Or actually, no, that's not true. There's one of them that's, a, that's an actual mission. Uh, didn't quite meet with success though. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's kind of a mixed bag. It's, you know, some good, some bad, some beautiful footage from eight years ago that we're just seeing now for the first time. I mean, not us as in humanity, us as in us three on the show. Now, I thought like, I don't know about you guys, but like, it it just suddenly like, while we were still coming up with ideas for today's episode, it seemed like there was a lot of news in the suborbital world that was just kind of just popping up on my social media and in our discord. And so I figured there was enough uh, meat on those bones to, uh, Throw them together for a, a little roundup of really cool stuff, including I think one of the most amazing pieces of footage ever in, in spaceflight. I mean, and there's of course incredible. What would you say like is the best clip of anything you've ever seen related to like you know spaceflight or rockets or you know spacecraft? And this has got to really be up there, I think, in terms of just beautiful. Starting in no particular uh, order, but I guess let's start successful. Uh, congratulations to Evolution mm-hmm. Space. <laughs> which has become the ninth private U.S. company to reach space. Um, A lot of times I see it without the qualifier U.S., and so I'm not entirely sure how many um, private non-U.S. companies have reached space. And I also don't know what are the nine private U.S. companies that have reached space, uh, aside from Do you know how they have defined space? Good question, whether they're using Kármán line or our 80-kilometer definition. Uh, yeah, I, I feel I feel like they might be doing a hundred kilometers with those numbers. Yeah, but this company definitely hit a uh, hundred kilometers for sure. And so yeah, they had a successful launch uh, out in Mojave, and they hit one hundred and twenty five, uh, one hundred twenty four point five kilometers, and reached Mach five point two with a rocket, <laughs> a rocket with the most wonderful name, uh, Gold Chain Cowboy. Mm-hmm. I wonder what the story is behind that. <laughs> for real, like, yeah, if we ever had uh, any evolution space uh, people on the show for an interview, that would be a question we would absolutely need to ask. But yeah, it's a, it's, you know, it's a suborbital rocket, so solid fueled. Um, it's uh, 22 feet long or 6.7 meters uh, uh, long. Uh, it's 10 inches in diameter, 25 centimeters, and it's about 900 pounds or 408 kilograms. And so this one uh, didn't have a payload, but included two 3D printed figurines. And uh, like you were alluding to, David, how we have a, uh, a number of tests and not so tests. And so this was uh, more on the test side, I guess, trying to get to orbit for the first time. And so congratulations again to them and really cool. And this was, yeah, like I said, out in Mojave, one of the three locations of the, uh, the tests that we'll be talking about today. Up next was is Up Aerospace. This one I, I caught on Twitter. This is a pretty startling YouTube. I can only imagine, or like the video of it is, I can only imagine what they must have felt like being there and watching it because this thing takes off and before the, like the camera can barely continue to pan and follow it before it already blows up. <laughs> like this thing did not get high before it went and went pop. Yeah, and you can see the payloads. I guess if you are going to rud, it's good to rud at a low enough altitude that the payloads can survive. And so you can see the debris falling afterwards. And most of the debris were the remains of people. So that company, Celestis, 
That, okay, you know, that was really terrifying for a second until I realized they were already <laughs> dead when the launch happened. Okay. <laughs> yep, I guess I buried that. No, so this is the company Celestis that does, you know, the high profile, you know, when there's remains that are launched on rockets, including ones that go, you know, much further than suborbital flights. Um, and this one had, I don't know quite how many people, I think maybe 120, I think was a number I'd seen. And so there was a lot of these little capsules, uh, little silver cylinders that had these people's remains along with their name and like a, you know, a short little message, like a few words that uh, the bereaved, I don't know, I guess uh, they're, they're, they're friends and family, yeah. whoever arranged for them to be on there, um, they would like leave a little message for them, which was, I thought, pretty nice. Yeah, a lot of the reporting, it almost made it sound like there was just one person's remains on board because there was a, uh, a NASA astronaut uh, along with all the other people mm. who I'm sure were awesome in their different ways. But yeah, the astronaut, I didn't know, I, I hadn't known about this guy, uh, Philip K. Chapman. He was from Astronaut Group 6. Oh, wow. He was the first um, Australian NASA astronaut, although he never actually uh, flew on a, on a mission. Uh, this was a, you know, being this group, uh, they were selected in 1967. So kind of, you know, they missed Apollo and you had to hang around. I mean, either you were lucky enough, I guess, to be put on Skylab or uh, Apollo Soyuz uh, test project, or you had to wait until shuttle. And that wasn't always easy to do, <laughs> uh, to wait the, uh, geez, 67 to 81. That's uh, 14 years. Pretty long time. Think about what you were doing 14 years ago and imagine you know, that's when you're selected to fly and that's the first time the shuttle actually flies. In any event, uh, that was really cool. The capsules... Like I said, it blew up so low uh, at low an altitude that they were all recovered and, be, and will be reflown. Uh, but there were also uh, 13 NASA TechRise student payloads um, that will not be reflown. So sorry, kids. These were uh, payloads for uh, six to 12th graders that designed and launched, which is a pretty cool program. I mean, imagine how cool you must feel <laughs> being able to uh, put something on an orbit that makes it, you know, to the edge of, or makes it to space. Yeah. Um, even though the, this, this series of payloads didn't quite do that. But I guess, I don't know if it was a coincidence or what, but just a few days ago, uh, someone had put on, on Reddit and uh, had tipped to Chris, a.k.a. Sty Garfield, who uh, uh, can't join us today because he's, uh, he's traveling out and about. But he showed us this, um, this footage from this Reddit post uh, where Up Aerospace had a rocket in 2015. And this is that video I was saying was just so stunningly beautiful. Um, there's a shorter clip on Reddit and there's a longer one that includes uh, earlier and later parts of the launch. But essentially, this is you know another one of, another one of their suborbital rockets. Uh, it was also launched from Spaceport America. I guess I didn't mention that. That's where this, uh, this one that blew up immediately was uh, launched from uh, in, in New Mexico. And what they did was they had a nose fairing um, with a camera on it facing, I guess, back, like, or, you know, down towards the rest of the rocket. And so it separated first. Okay. And so there is footage of that, which is okay. That's cool. We've seen, you know, footage of separation from one of the pieces of the vehicle that's separating. But it then kind of, I guess, tumbles and falls off to the side of where the remaining upper stage, or it's not really an upper stage, where the kind of, I guess, all the payloads are, and then the booster. And and you can see these three tethers from the yo-yo uh, dewinding that they did as well, which is pretty cool, because we've talked about how you do that to de-spin your rocket, angular momentum, you increase your moment of inertia by sending out these yo-yos. And so it just so happens that this nose-faring camera pans over to where the 
payloads are and the booster and then when the payloads separate from the booster and so you have a yeah, third like person perfectly centered image yeah i know right the timing and everything is just perfect and so that is incredible and again 2015 is when this this happened and so with a recent failure like they fly solid rockets i don't i don't know how they didn't manage to i mean obviously they're not going to get this kind of video but like it it should be pretty easy to to not explode with a solid rocket. I wonder what happened. That is a good question. Yeah, we we got to get uh, uh, Barnard on it. Yeah, go, go uh, <laughs> do some independent failure investigation. That's what I was gonna say. It's not gonna be so easy to like. We probably wouldn't ca- catch you know on Space News, uh, you know, yeah. or one of the one of the major sites talking about the follow up you know failure analysis, but. You know, maybe if we yeah. keep our ears to the ground, we'll be able to. Well, I mean, heck, even up uh, on their website, upaerospace.com, um, their most recent post is from May of 2021. The one before that yeah. is from 2019. Yeah. So, like, um, they don't spend too much time on, on publicity, I guess. Well, if anybody's listening who works with Up <laughs> and, you know. And you could let us know when you guys figure out what happened. When you all figure out what happens, you know that'd be much appreciated. Mm. <laughs> I mean, it's got it's got to just be like a, a an engine failure. Like the the engine just must not have been cast properly, and like you know there was a, a crack in the grain or something. Like I don't know what a, it. It's so simple. I don't know what else it could be. Yeah, and, and the fact that it happened so soon showed that it was yeah. just something fundamentally wrong with it, where it was like able to survive yeah. firing for. Three seconds, and then a uh, another. Uh, this this is, I guess, the the mixed bag. It was a uh, success as well as a failure. I do like, of course, headlines uh, tend to be ridiculous sometimes and purposefully uh, provocative. And this is an example of where some news outlets are reporting this as Swedish launches rocket at Norway, or Swedish rocket, <laughs> you know, hits Norway, and. What happened was Sweden, right? They've got their S range uh, spaceport where they do a lot of suborbital flights. They've been doing them since we've been sending Nike, you know, rockets up there since the '60s, and they have one which, uh, uh, or ESA has one called the uh, the the Texas. Uh, I guess this is Texas 58 rocket. It's T E X U S, which I think is an interesting name for a European uh, sounding rocket, but. That's what it is. Texas, maybe. I'm seeing on Wikipedia, they're calling it a European slash German. So uh, in any event, this one, though, was like a real, you know, proper mission. These Texas rockets have been launching for decades. And so they hit 250 kilometers and had scientific payloads on board. Uh, and so that seemed to be success. They made their measurements in, in uh, weightlessness. But evidently, some malfunction, uh, unspecified uh, as of now, resulted in it going uh, off its nominal path and then landing in a mountain in Norway. And so the Swedish-Norwegian uh, rivalry, of course, going back centuries, uh, uh, this resulted in some, some, some words from the Norwegian government, basically. Here, here's from the Norwegian foreign ministry. Uh, the crash of a rocket like this is a very serious incident that can cause serious damage. When such a border violation occurs, it is crucial that those responsible immediately inform the relevant Norwegian authorities through the proper channels. And so, I don't know how much uh, uh, the Swedish uh, Space Corporation failed to give them the heads up that, you know, this had landed out of 
Swedish <laughs> territory and into Norwegian. But uh, in any event, we had this sort of uh, Nordic kerfuffle uh, happening. So Texas or Texas is actually an acronym um, translated into English. It's Technological Experiments in Zero Gravity. And it, it's actually not a strange word uh, for ESA DLR. Um, they've got other sounding rockets named Maxus and Rexus. So ah. I think it's, I, I think it makes a lot of sense in the, in the flow of things. But uh, for somebody like us who's just hearing this word for the first time, we're like, yeehaw, Texas. You know, that, uh, like, go, go, gold chain Bronco or whatever. What's the other one called? <laughs> gold chain cowboy. Gold, gold chain gold, cowboy. Gold chain cowboy. <laughs> Texas. <laughs> Yeah. And that's funny when you when you were when you were starting to describe how like, you know, Texas is consistent with how they're naming their rockets, my brain immediately went to like, oh, they must have another one called Ohio and another <laughs> one called Florida, but like I see you went the other way. Um, how <laughs> How weird would that be? That would be uh interesting uh nomenclature, but so yeah, I guess a busy couple weeks though for uh for suborbital flight, which I know, Ben, you've likened to, you know, you throw a baseball in the air, that's a suborbital trajectory, <laughs> which is true. But yeah, this had some booms, uh, some international incidents, and some gold chain cowboys. So let's just do two short and sweets this week. And Dennis, what is the first? Dragonfly faces proposed 20% budget cut. ZB Turtle, the principal investigator for the NASA Dragonfly mission that aims to land an octocopter on Titan in 2034, has said that a proposed 20% budget cut could force changes to the mission or its schedule. NASA's 2024 budget requested $327 million for the vehicle, a significant reduction from the $400 million received in 2023. This cut drops funding below the level estimated for the current mission profile, and the team is in the process of evaluating cost and schedule options moving forward. Dragonfly is currently planned to launch in 2027, with NASA Administrator Bill Nelson saying that the cut would not delay that launch date. And I guess more about possible budget cuts. New prospects for New Horizons. The New Horizons science team and NASA are debating the future of the spacecraft now that its primary mission has ended. Alan Stern, the principal investigator for New Horizons, has suggested a multidisciplinary mission of heliophysics, astrophysics, and planetary science. NASA approved a budget for two years, but not the three years requested on grounds that the planetary science that could be done was less compelling than the heliophysics and astrophysics aspects of the proposal. So basically, uh, one there's one thing that they don't like. And so they're thinking of just cutting a whole year of uh, science for New Horizons, which we're, I agree with Alan Stern. That's not a good idea. Yeah, we're getting nothing but bad news when it comes to funding planetary missions. Okay, stand by. We're looking at it. Questions, comments, and corrections. This week, it's mostly comments and corrections. I don't think we have any questions this time, but we have a couple of uh, emails and DMs. Two questions yeah. and a good clarification. Questions, comments, corrections, and clarifications, yeah. The, these are mostly things that aren't really our fault. They were things that um, came out early and have since been clarified, but some of them we, we probably could have gotten right on the day. Um, so th this is from uh, Espen, who emailed us and said the uh, the communication loss at T plus 27 seconds. I don't remember how we talked about this, but uh, that was just engine 19 that lost communication. I think we kind of went back and forth about what that might have meant. And I, I think we went, yeah, it's got to be just the engine, because if you lose communication with the whole thing, you're 
kind of toast. Um, but that is, uh, a mistake in the, uh, the original transcript of the Twitter spaces session, uh, that I think Eric Berger put out. So like that one, uh, I'm okay with, <laughs> with us, uh, only half catching that one. Uh, the other one is the AFTS didn't take 40 seconds to activate. It took 40 seconds from activation to, to actually destroy the rocket. Well, this is something that I pointed out that again, I mean, this wasn't, this wasn't my observation, but this was what I got from yeah. Scott Manley who said that it had put holes in the tank, but then you said that those were holes that were a result of the tank having bent because of the dynamic stresses on it. I think. Yeah, that sounds about right. I don't really remember. I haven't spent a lot of time thinking about this stuff. Normally like through the week, like I, I burn this stuff into memory as I'm thinking about it and like reading new stuff. And I just the last couple of weeks I've not been doing that. So, okay. Yeah, cool. So at, at least we, you know, kind of close. It's still and bad then, though, um, isn't it? Oh no, totally. I totally right? agree. It's like, <laughs> okay. And I think Asma's probably right. Um, they say uh, most likely due to the air not stressing the structure enough at that altitude. So y- you want your f- flight termination system to like unzip your rocket and then it can go boom appropriately. But I think part of that is including some reliance on on stress from the air whooshing past, right? So I don't know if it, if it's exactly sheer stress because it's not differential on different ends of the rocket unless you're <laughs> tumbling <laughs> like Starship. And then Aspen points out the crazy thing is that it kept spinning with all the engines still running even while there were huge holes in the tank. I don't know how huge they were, but I also haven't gone over that footage too closely. Uh, I would have thought that the engines would have been commanded to shut down by AFTS, but apparently that didn't happen either. And that I think is a, is probably a good observation. It's like, yeah, you, you would think that that command would do everything it could to passivate the, the rocket, including blowing it up, uh, but not starting with blowing it up. So yeah, I don't know what's going on with that. I, I think, I think they had some communication issues. Like when the thing starts tumbling, like I'll bet you that it just, it's not, pointing where the rocket thinks it is you know like i think they're gonna have some radio issues uh, maybe it's just simple interference maybe it's actually like a directional antenna issue and then uh uh andrew wrote in uh andrew zandanowitz wrote in uh via email and pointed out that in the three-part everyday astronaut interview with elon that elon mentioned a flip uh for uh second stage separation and like all three of us missed that I think it's because it's a three-part interview and I don't know, like, I know I had it on in the background at some point. Clearly I wasn't paying that much attention to it. It was a long interview, but like, so we, we talked about this a little bit and I don't think any of us went and tracked that exact statement back down. Right. Yeah. I tried to find it, but I don't know where it is. Like you said, it's like three, one hour long videos. Yeah. They're just like, um, Googling the flip, like starship, you know, flip maneuver is tough because that's i get a lot of results for the uh after the belly flop mm-hmm. um, yeah, but i mean if you go to everydayastronaut.com tim dodd's website on just uh the, on the starship super heavy uh flight test yeah he's got written here during stage separation the booster will perform a kick and flip maneuver to separate the ship from the booster using the inertia of the kick from the booster the ship will separate and then ignite all six engines to continue on its path to orbit so yeah, it's been there apparently. And then in further uh, uh, Starship news, <laughs> Starship <laughs> elaborations, uh, Anderson DeNova, old friend of the show, uh, direct messaged me on Discord and 
Um, so Anderson uh, actually works with um, subsea equipment um, in the petroleum industry. And so he doesn't do like oil platform, like up at the surface kind of stuff, I don't think. But he says that he you know knows a lot of people who do that and has a lot of uh, interactions with people who do that. And uh, so he's like, the idea that SpaceX could save costs building a going back to the sea launch concept uh, is kind of crazy. And this wasn't something that we had suggested. We were just asking like, well, is this, is the, uh, the pad uh, renovations going to push them into switching to sea launch? Is that still an option? And Anderson says, well, I had a little conversation and he's like, well, who knows what Elon's going to decide, but from a, like an industry perspective, there's no way that that makes sense from a cost saving solution. Like it, it may be better for regulatory purposes or, you know, all these other reasons, but like from the strict, like upkeep and engineering perspective, you have a corrosive environment, uh, on the, on the shore where they are ready launch. It just gets worse when you go out, uh, into the sea. Um, and then actually the, the regulatory aspect might actually be worse. Um, because like sometimes you get into international stuff, you get, uh, additional authorities, right? So now you have to deal with Marine authorities, not just the FAA and the County and whatever. And then structurally, like the actual practicalities of it. Also, you have, uh, wave dynamics, uh, currents that you have to fight, uh, potentially heightened wind and storm loading. Uh, and it like totally depends on like what they're actually going to do. Uh, but he's like, yeah, no, that doesn't seem like a, a viable alternative, uh, just to, to avoid rebuilding, uh, a launch pad. And I, I think that's, uh, that's pretty darn reasonable. So just, just another, uh, another perspective to, to think about this. And certainly since, uh, since the Starship launch, Elon has talked a lot about how confident they are in building a new pad and, and getting it up and, and running. So that, that seems to be, uh, an accurate guess. Also, did you guys see the shower head steel plate that, that, uh, they were talking about? I mean, somebody did a render. So this was actually Vax Hedrum who posted this. Um, and it is a render from Ryan Hansen space on Twitter. That is a possible, it's a render of, of one way that this could actually work out. And it's, it's pretty cool. So it's a, it's a steel plate, um, that sits on the ground and below that steel plate, um, are a bunch of channels to bring water to holes in the steel plate. So it kind of acts like, um, an air hockey table, but with water. So you get this nice, even coverage of water. Um, and the water helps protect everything just cause it's, you know, it's, it's water. It's like incompressible. It's got like all these good features. Yeah. It's a water, I guess like a water hockey table. <laughs> yeah. Water hockey table. Yeah. Um, and that, that does seem, a lot better than just a sole steel plate. I don't know if it's going to do the job because it, it it's not that big of an area in this mock-up. But you know, we'll we'll see. We could always be wrong. <laughs> it still seems like a heck of a lot of uh, of upkeep to me. The fact that it's still not being diverted really in some kind of yeah direction. And like, who wants to refurbish 
like who wants to refurbish their launch site? Like that's it, it really shouldn't take that much to to recycle for the next launch. But I guess if they can convert it all into steam, it won't be or some of it. Mm. If you can't divert it, convert it, right? Yeah, yeah. No, I guess you know if it, if it absorbs the energy, then what does go out will not be launching things, chunks of concrete up to the top of the booster or small little things to the neighboring towns. Yeah, does seem ideal to not do that. <laughs> All right, so let's move on to this week in Spaceflight History. We, we just have two answers, both with bonus points uh, for Psykyle and the Greek, uh, and that's it. And the clue was around the elbow to get to the nose. So that was a interesting clue. And I mean, I had no idea what that meant, but I think I am familiar with this particular mission for a reason that I'll get to um, later on. So what is this mission or this particular event, I should say? So uh, this week in spaceflight history is the 13th of May, 1998. uh, And the event was Asia sat three's lunar flyby. Um, I want to point out before I forget, uh, Cy Kyle mentioned in discord that uh, they actually work with a former Hughes engineer. And so Psykyle actually heard about this from an engineer who worked at Hughes, um, mm. which is very cool. And like, that would have been a fun beer uh, or you know, a nice uh, work break or whatever. Okay. So uh, Asia sat three uh, launched on the 24th of December, 1997. It launched on a proton K with a block DM 2M upper stage. This, this upper stage I don't think it was used very much, right? So the, the block D upper stage has got a bunch of different variants and DM2M is very similar to block DM2. Uh, it's just that DM2M uses Sintin as a fuel instead of RP1, which is like kind of weird. So, so anyway, the, the, the upper stage failed. The upper stage cut off after one second worth of burn instead of the intended 110 seconds. Um, I wasn't able to find a really good, solid conclusion as to what caused the failure, or uh, I, w- I was able to find four possible options that an investigation pulled up, and none of these four seem particularly specific, so bear with me. So the, the first option was a failure of one of the propulsion systems. We're kind of going back and forth on the Russian translation, but we believe that this is the RCS, which seems crazy. Why? Failure of the RCS shouldn't cause a cutoff one second in unless there's some sort of safety system. I don't know. Um, a second option was a uh, power loss in the turbo pump, which, yeah, sure, that would do it. Um, another one was a gas generator valve failure. And then the final one, which actually seems like an actual kind of specific issue, is uh, gox ingestion, getting uh, gaseous oxygen being pulled into the engine, which causes it to, to run hot. But anyway, so the the upper stage failed, and it was intending to put this satellite into a geosynchronous orbit. But instead, they wound up in this high inclination, like a transfer orbit, plus like one second of burn, right? Um, and there's there's nothing to do. The the satellite basically doesn't have enough power to get its orbit circularized and to um, get rid of the inclination. And the vehicle is actually declared a total loss. Uh, the insurance companies said, yep, we'll go ahead and pay out for this. And then what's really cool is that later on, the vehicle was sold to Hughes. And, and Hughes actually said, hey, we think we can save this thing. 
uh, why don't you give it to us? And if we can make any profit off of it, we will split the profit with you. Um, which I think is uh, a very interesting setup that we don't see very often. So how in the world is uh, Hughes willing to take this risk thinking that they can get the vehicle back into op- operational an operational orbit. Any KSP players are going to say, well, you're already in a geostationary transfer orbit. Why don't you just use the moon? And like, it's kind of this obvious solution from um, maybe more of a modern perspective. I don't know that this was at all obvious um, back in the late 90s. There's a little bit of confusion on uh, whether Hughes was considering a gravity assist from the moon or not. Different sources uh, disagree. But uh, Ed Belbruno, who is a, a name that has been mentioned before on the show, Ed had been working on um, some low energy transfer kind of uh, dynamic problems. And he called it a weak stability boundary, which I, I don't think we really talk about weak stability boundary anymore, but like it is like one of the, f- one of the founding, uh, terms for this kind of orbital dynamics, like the three body orbital dynamics. Yeah. Well, this is what I was saying that I remember because we had talked about it before. And okay. because I had read a book by him called Fly Me to the Moon, which I'd mentioned previously on some mm-hmm. episode, you know, a long time ago. I vaguely remember us talking about this and, getting kind of confused to, yeah, this weak stability boundary. We were talking about the lumpiness of gravity, which of course is only a thing if you're very close to the body that you're orbiting. But then I was saying, well, no, like, you know, like if you're far away, it's kind of like that, but I shouldn't have been saying it in those terms because it's just, it's weak and kind of chaotic because it's such like, you know, a very tenuous uh, hold by that body. So it's not lumpy, but it is very unpredictable. And so he kind of devised some kind of mathematics in order to actually use that to your advantage. If you don't have a lot of, you know, like Delta V at your disposal, then you can employ these types of mechanics and I guess just make a spacecraft do things that you otherwise wouldn't be able to. So, yeah. 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 No, no. It's, and it's, it's so fascinating because like if you talk about um, this kind of orbital dynamics with anything but precise math, you wind up finding yourself using a lot of very like flowery uh, analogy kind of language that is, it's nice because it's less precise, but unfortunately it's less precise. Right? Like, and so we wind up describing things as lumpy when they aren't really lumpy, but right. So, uh, so Ed is like, Hey, this vehicle is done for, but it's still got plenty of fuel. Uh, and it's already in a reasonably high orbit. Um, maybe we can use this to test out some of these theories. Um, so he got in touch with Rex Rydenor. I could be pronouncing this last name wrong. Uh, I believe there are some silent letters in here, but he, he calls up Rydenor and he says, Hey, uh, can, can we use this thing? And Rex had some contacts at Hughes. Uh, he, he used to work at Hughes and says, hey, put, get, like, get some in touch and says, Ed Belbruno's got some weird ideas, but like, maybe this would work. And Hughes goes, yeah, let's, let's take a look at it. So Ed had designed, um, this like keyhole, uh, low energy transfer thing. And so he like sent them over some of the, some of the math that they would need to be able to do this. And Ed's original trajectory, um, would have gotten the inclination of the vehicle down to zero. It was stuck in a 51.6 degree inclination. And like anybody who's played KSP knows that 
um, boosting the perigee of the orbit uh, would be expensive, but also having to change the inclination is just going to burn through all of your fuel. So with with using this weird um, moon gravity assist and getting your inclination down to zero degrees is a very, very valuable uh, trajectory to, to have in your back pocket. The only problem is that um, these long, wibbly-wobbly kind of transfers wind up putting your vehicle outside of the moon's orbit for a fairly long time. In this case, four or five months. Um, and Hughes, it turns out, didn't have the ability to track satellites that were that far away from Earth. And they said, you know what? Not being able to track our spacecraft for four or five months is intolerable. We, we're not going to spend time and money and also lose contact with it for that long. It's too risky. So instead, um, they tweaked the idea and instead of using like these novel stellar dynamic principles, they used Apollo era dynamic principles. Um, and they built a free return trajectory, um, that would basically do the same thing. Um, it would leave a good 10 degrees worth of inclination when it was done, but on the upside, the vehicle would only spend uh, a few days outside of their tracking uh, radius. Um, and they, they go, okay, well, we can handle that because, you know, it's already a free satellite that's already in orbit. And I, I wasn't able to find exactly how much work Bell Bruno did um, with Hughes on this free return trajectory. Some sources I read made it sound like Hughes kind of came up with a free trajectory math on their own, which makes sense in that it's, um, simple enough. It's less complicated than, um, than the weak stability boundary kind of stuff. But, um, there is a patent and I'll put a link to it in the show notes, but, uh, Ed Belbruno and Rex Reidner patented the trajectory that wound up, uh, being used. And, like patents are such a great nerd topic because like everybody says like, Oh yeah, you can't patent the idea of this, but you can patent a machine that does it. And like, there's this, this like delight in the pedantry of being like, Oh, you, you can't patent that, but you can't patent this other thing. And in this case, they're not patenting a machine, right? Like they're patenting a technique in orbit. And like, for some reason, according to us patent law, that's okay. <laughs> But yeah, so they, they uh, filed a patent in 1998, and it actually like specifies the things that they did on orbit pretty well. They're like prospective at this point, like when the in the patent, it's like, this is how we will do it on this particular vehicle. And then like, it, this is an, an exemplar of, of the concept. But like, from what I understand, like, what they wrote wound up being the actual game plan, which is pretty neat. Okay, so the salvage operations uh, were like good to go. The first step is waiting until the moon's in the right place. Um, the thing is that you want to encounter the moon at the moon's ascending or descending node. Um, so you, you have to wait until that winds up uh, aligning with your vehicle. While you're waiting for that to happen, you have plenty of time to boost your altitude uh, close to the moon. And what's nice is that um, to get this timing right, 
um, as you're doing these multiple burns to get up to lunar altitude, um, you have orbital periods that are changing. And so if you wait in one or multiple of those orbits, you can treat that orbit as a phasing orbit and allow it to align uh, the spacecraft with the moon. And that that's what they did. They, um, I think they did 11 burns in total and um, most of them, they waited two orbits. Some of them, they waited three orbits. And I think one of them, they didn't wait at all. They just burned on the next perigee, but like they do the math. It's almost like, um, like doing gear ratio math, right? When they do the math, they figure out, uh, what their timing is going to be. And it's kind of interesting because like they get up to their last orbit, like this highest 11th orbit. Um, and they wait there and the burn for the final encounter with the moon, uh, is actually one of the smallest burns that they do in total. And they were able to boost way up and then wait multiple orbits for the moon to catch up without having to worry about their orbit being perturbed too much by the fact that they were that close to the moon's altitude. Um, it's just kind of interesting that like those later uh, orbits give you more, uh, more loiter time, but they also have the greatest chance of you getting perturbed out of your orbit. Um, but apparently it wasn't an issue here or they uh, accounted for it. So they, they get all the way up and then they do their, um, their final like uh, injection burn. And they actually made a, the first pass by the moon and then a second pass by the moon as well. The first pass was at an altitude of 6,200 kilometers above the lunar surface, which is like really close. So you can imagine how big of an effect this would have had on the orbit of the vehicle. The second pass was much farther away at uh, 34,300 kilometers. And so that one is more like a dialing in, like a little tweaky kind of pass. After those two passes, they started doing burns at their perigee. Their perigee is now they've kind of like flipped their whole orbit upside down. Uh, they started out with their apogee at geostationary orbit and their perigee down by the earth. And now they've swapped it around so that their perigee is at geostationary orbit and their apogee is up by the moon. So they do, um, a good long burn, uh, at perigee to bring themselves close to geostationary orbit. But the first like holding orbit they went into, uh, was a four day period. So this is higher than, than geostationary by quite a bit. Cause right. Cause geostationary is one day by definition. Once they're in this four day holding orbit, they did some final tweaks to their inclination. Remember that they, they arrived with a good 10 degrees of inclination still remaining due to not uh not being able to do the full three body kind of uh transfer and so they burn a, a pretty decent amount of fuel i call it a, an injection tweak but remember or a, an inclination tweak but remember how much energy inclination changes take up and so they they actually burn quite a bit of energy um pulling their inclination back down the number that i was able to find after they like did this final uh, inclination correction uh, was 330 degrees, which to me suggests 30 degrees off of the actual inclination that you want. But remember that the Earth's equator is not, it's not flat, right? <laughs> like it, the Earth has a, a tilt 
uh, thank goodness. And so I don't know what the, how much inclination they still had to get rid of after that burn. Well, what's interesting is that they actually used the sun and moon's gravity to um, cause their inclination to zero out just using, you know, fancy gravitational effects, uh, but very, very weak gravitational effects. This final um, zeroing out uh, took 15 years or was planned to take 15 years. Um, but I think they got to the point where it was good enough for the communications that they wanted to be able to do. What's really interesting is that if you want to do the free return trajectory, there is still the possibility of getting your inclination down to zero doing that, but you have to launch at the right time of year. You basically have two times a year where um, the equatorial plane of the Earth and the uh, orbital plane of the moon are lined up so that you can do one encounter with the moon, tweak your inclination, and it is perfectly aligned with the Earth's inclination. Otherwise, the argument of the ascending node is like out of whack by a certain amount. And it's cool because like with this free return trajectory, they did actually push the argument of the ascending node some distance. I, I didn't see how far it was, but like they changed their uh, their perigee height, they changed their inclination, and they changed the argument of the ascending node and got, you know, relatively close. Um, it wasn't perfect, but it, it was it was pretty close. So when when this vehicle gets to geostationary orbit, it still has half of its fuel left. And and that's like really shockingly cool for a vehicle that had been total lost. Like the companies, the insurance company said, yeah, we'll pay you for this thing because it's toast. And with some really clever math, no, you can actually get half of the life of this vehicle left. All this time that it spent doing its orbit raising and phasing and all this stuff, it had its solar arrays closed. Um, so when it finally gets... Um, to geo it tries to deploy its solar wings one of them was stuck shut uh they decided it was due to thermal cycling i don't know how deeply they looked into it because i think everybody was just glad <laughs> to have <laughs> an operational vehicle at all um and so i realized i really would have loved to have named uh, or made the clue for this week uh half a life after the uh Star Trek the Next Generation season four episode <laughs> Half a Life. Yeah. Uh because like how appropriate is it to arrive with half the fuel and half the solar array? Um, <laughs> but you know. Uh maybe uh next time we accidentally do this a second time, because I feel like we accidentally repeat uh, oh. to Wisps every once in a while. Maybe at some point in the future, we'll be able to use that clue. Not intentionally, but maybe uh, accidentally. So the, the vehicle was moved to 158 degrees west and named HGS-1. Uh, later on, it was moved to 60 degrees west, uh, sold to uh, Pan Am Sat, and renamed to PIS-22, PAUSE-22. And in July 2002, it was finally uh, deactivated and moved to a graveyard orbit. And that's this week in spaceflight history. Dang. Very cool, right? Very satisfying uh, yeah. in a couple of different ways. What a ride. <laughs> 
Awesome. So it's good to hear another, um, well, I think the only, well, not the only one, but the mission that I'm familiar with because of uh, Bell Bruno. All right. So moving on to next week, um, the date range is the 16th through the 22nd. And Dennis, do you have a clue for us? I do. Next week in 2011, pass the baton. Well, that could mean a lot of things. I don't know. But uh, if anyone out there thinks that they know, give us a tweet with the hashtag ThisWeekSF and good luck. Good luck, everybody. All right, so let's move on to upcoming spaceflight events. We got three launches, one spacewalk. That's a good combination. Uh, what's the first launch, Dennis? Well, I think this was the last launch we talked about last week. And so evidently yeah. the Long March 7 that's taken the Tianzhou 6 uh, cargo to the Chinese space station uh, has slipped or been moved or whatever happened. And so in any event, uh, it is now currently slated to make it to the space station and launch on Wednesday, May 10th with a window from 1315 UTC to 1335 UTC uh, flying out of Wenchang Satellite Launch Center. After that, we have a Falcon 9 Block 5 launching Starlink Group 29. And they just they just hit, or they are about to hit with this next group, a big milestone, like 10,000 or something. So this launch is going to be happening out of Vandenberg on Wednesday, May 10th, uh, between 1954 hours UTC and 2100 hours UTC. Uh, next up, but before that, uh, thank you to Launch Library 2, which is where we start our research each week. I forgot to mention that at the top there. Um, I always forget that. Interestingly, the next event uh, does not come from Launch Library 2, and that is uh, a Russian spacewalk, um, which is number 58, and that's to deploy and activate the Nauka radiator. And the time to watch that on NASA TV, uh, let's see, coverage begins uh, 1130 in the morning, and it is expected to begin the actual spacewalk at 1155, so about 25 minutes later. And it's going to last for about seven hours, so, you know, a nice long spacewalk. So yeah, check that out on NASA TV. And finally, just to make sure that the East Coast doesn't feel left out, a Falcon 9 Block 5 will be launching Starlink Group 5-9 from the Cape uh, on Friday, May 12th, with a window from 0342 to 1033 UTC. All right. Those are your upcoming spaceflight events. All right, which means it's time to deal with the show, and we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to Colin, Delta V with the Space, Mike, Vax Headroom, The Greek, Chris, a.k.a. Steigarfield, and The Supernova for joining our recording session today and helping us make correction burns on the fly. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign affiliate links and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com and be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit. We're Orbital Podcast on both, and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. So that's it, and we will see you all next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you.